All right, Descartes. So congratulations, you have made it through the first half of this philosophy class. At this point, it is all downhill because most of the uh, philosophers that we're going to read at this point tend to be a lot more accessible than Aquinas or even Plato for that matter. Um, the closer we get to the present with these historical philosophers, the closer their ideas are going to resemble our own um, for the most part. Um, so while I expect that Descartes and Hume may blow your mind, even perhaps more than Aquinas and Plato did, kind of the key here is that they are blowing your mind in a way that you're prepared for. Like, Aquinas has some absolutely mind-blowing stuff to say, but frequently it is in a mindset that is so unfamiliar to us that we miss exactly what is going on, um, and we fail to understand exactly how important the stuff he's talking about is. But with Descartes and with Hume, it's a lot closer to home. This is stuff that is, if not stuff that we think about, stuff that we are primed to think about, um, because our literature and our philosophy and our media has been sort of feeding it to us little by little in sort of subtle um, ways for you know the duration of our lives. Um, our world is very much made by Descartes and by Hume and by these thinkers. Um, and part of the reason, like, one of the things that I definitely want to do today is talk about exactly how that shift occurred. Um, because while there was something like practically 2,000 years, um, a good 1,500 at the very least, between Plato and Aquinas, um, and that sheer length of time yields a radical transformation in the way that the world thought about itself. Um, the shift from Aquinas to Descartes, even though it doesn't take nearly as long, even though it's only like three or four hundred years, is no less important. Um, this is probably the one of the most dynamic periods in philosophical history, if not world history in general. Um, in fact, most, like, most historians tend to sort of divide history of at least the history of Western culture according to the Renaissance, um, this period that separates Aquinas and Descartes, um, largely because so much changes, and in a very real sense, everything goes back to the way it was. Um, so Aquinas, as we mentioned in prior lectures, um, he is writing at the end of the medieval period. He is one of the scholastics, the sort of great pinnacle and, and sort of um, climax of medieval philosophy and medieval thought. Um, it was the most organized that the medieval thinkers became. It was the most systematic. It was the most sort of um, influential. Um, the great scholastic thinkers at the end of the medieval period in the 13th and 14th centuries are have a profound effect, especially on Catholicism even today. Um, but shortly after they were writing, we get something that totally changes everything for Western culture in general. Um, namely, Gutenberg invents his printing press with its movable type. Um, and as I stressed in the Aquinas lecture, like up until this point, um, in order to reproduce a book, to copy it out, or to, you know, write a new one and get it circulated to all your friends, um, you had to have it copied by hand, which was a painstaking process. Um, like, multiple monks working for a month would put together one Bible. Um, whereas now, with the printing press, you can literally print, like, hundreds of Bibles in a matter of weeks. 
Um, more than that, that means that there's a whole bunch of free time available to print other stuff, like, for example, the works of Plato, or the works of Aristotle, or the works of weirdo philosophers like Aquinas and his kind. Um, and this sort of ushers in this explosion of knowledge. Um, like, just the way that people interact is so radically different as far as scholars are concerned. Um, like, before Gutenberg, this business of scholarship was conducted through personal letters, which took a long time to get from place to place, if they ever got there at all. Um, they were not frequently duplicated unless they some like grand significance was seen in them um and as a result like trying to document what what is going on in the world at this time is painfully difficult but afterwards like if you are you know artist slash philosopher slash um like scientist leonardo da vinci and you have some brilliant idea about the way that plants work you can literally write your thoughts down get it printed relatively cheaply in like great quantities and circulate it to all of western europe like no problem um this is easy to do and fairly quick and the world is radically different as a result um so in the renaissance in the late 15th and early 16th centuries um, there is this radical, like, rapid dissemination of new information. Science really, like, kicks off in a way that we just have not seen up until this point. Like, even Aquinas trying to push for the authority of the senses does not have the reach um, that these thinkers do. And this includes, um, like, we think of Rena the Renaissance as being associated with art, especially, um, largely because this is when Brunelleschi, who is one of these, you know, early thinkers and early scientists, published, published his own book on linear perspective, um, representing 3D spaces in two dimensions, which was something that the Greeks could do, um, and something that the Romans could do to some degree, but it was something that had been lost in the intervening centuries of medieval um, literature and philosophy. Largely because the medievals weren't terribly concerned with it. The medievals had a fairly low view of art, except as it existed in service to religion. Um, and as a result, frequently they would take pains not to adequate or accurately represent um, the, the figures that they were putting to paper. Um, that's why if you look at like medieval artwork, Mary and Jesus and company look really flat and unrealistic, like their hands are really weird and it, it just doesn't look at all like you know a three-dimensional person in a three-dimensional space um part of it was they didn't know how part of it was they didn't want to um they wanted it to be iconic and not representative um remember bible has some pretty strict restrictions on representing god as an image how that fits into the whole jesus thing is one of the questions that a lot of medieval theologians are asking about and in fact there's a whole huge debate that ends in violence about how you can represent um, holy figures like Jesus and Mary and the figures from the Bible, um, the iconoclasm controversy, which is mainly an Eastern religion thing, like an orthodoxy thing, but it definitely has some major effects in the West as well. Um, but at any rate, then Brudelewski shows up and he has all these ideas about linear perspective, and now we have all of this beautiful artwork from Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci and Donatello and the other Ninja Turtles, um, which all demonstrate this three-dimensional space. You know, 
human beings, human figures that look like human beings, human figures, um, with astonishing realism and astonishing depth and a great command of these principles of how vision actually works. And a large part of this is because these artists were in fact able to talk to each other. They were printing their treatises and circulating them around the, the Renaissance world. Um, and it was much faster, like the change in art was almost immediate compared to uh, previous artistic periods. Like in the course of a hundred years, you went from the medieval representative two-dimensional style to the high Renaissance, the Sistine Chapel ceiling and the Last Supper of Da Vinci, um, Michelangelo's David, like some really impressive artwork, the likes of which has never been seen before. Um, but at the same time as this is happening, there's also a lot of changes in philosophy and theology, especially, um, right at the peak of this high Renaissance, like literally within years of Michelangelo finishing the Sistine Chapel ceiling, some punk monk named Mart Martin Luther nails 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral and starts what is probably the biggest and most violent Christian schism in the entirety of history the Protestant Reformation. Um, in the process of being able to publish and circulate your ideas, it became fairly commonplace for the middle class, people who had been trading, people who had made money through means other than just like pure wealth handed down from generation to generation. These people were learning to read, and as a result, a much larger proportion of the European public uh, were literate than ever before because there were more books to read like they were physically available in ways that they weren't before um, being able to read was a luxury once upon a time now it's almost commonplace or at least not unusual and then luther is appealing to these people saying why are we paying all this money to the catholic church why are we letting them do these exploitative indulgence practices is this real christianity is this in fact what we're supposed to be doing um, and he is tapping into the thoughts of a lot of people at this point in time um, the protestant reformation takes off like crazy and the catholic church is scrambling to try and fix it, like to just put down this heresy as they see it. But this is not a heresy that is going to be put down. The Catholic Church is used to heresies cropping up in specific locations. Um, one heretic will show up and get a bunch of dis disciples in one particular area, they'll write a couple of letters, and all you have to do is quash it. Like you go in, you you know condemn the heretics, you excommunicate them from the church, you take away their privileges, and all of a sudden you've defanged them. There's nothing to worry about anymore. Protestantism doesn't work like that. Like Luther finds a lot of disciples all over the European world really, really fast. Luther starts making churches, and those churches keep publishing Bibles, and those churches keep publishing tracts, and those tracts keep getting disseminated and circulated, and more and more churches are springing up. Um, what's more, there's some political advantage to be gained in joining up with the Protestants because no lord wants to be tithing 10% of their earnings every year to the church. They don't want to keep giving the church all their land so the church can do whatever they want to it. So by joining Protestantism, you get to kick out all the bishops and you get to kick out all the priests. You get to take all their, all their land and turn it to your own profit. Um, so there are a bunch of true believers in the Protestant Reformation. A bunch of people who really and truly believe that the Catholic Church has lost its way and that the truth of Christianity lies in this new way preached by Luther or Calvin. Um, but there are also a bunch of people who are just jumping on it for convenience. 
Um, Henry VIII, king of England, famously left Catholicism because they wouldn't give him a divorce. Um, the entirety of Anglicanism was started by Henry VIII to try and get rid of his wife without having to cut off her head the way he had the last one. Um, Henry VIII was a real stand-up figure, if it wasn't obvious. Um, this is the new way that philosophy works. Like, I realize this is more theology than philosophy proper, but remember that at this point, the two are intimately linked. Um, Aquinas is writing philosophy under the name of theology. Like, that's what he does. Um, for Luther to basically reject that entire tradition is a giant philosophical move. And this is another one of those big, big changes that rocks the entire world. Um, for decades, Europe is going to be in chaos as people are fighting each other trying to figure out what to do about this new upstart religion. Is it Christianity? Is it not Christianity? Is Catholicism losing its power? Whose side do you join? Um, this is crazy, complicated stuff. Um, and it's one of many things that is contributing to a new worldview that is coming out of this. Um, because one of the characteristics of the Renaissance, like again, science is picking up speed. There's all of this new opportunity to sort of publish your th thoughts about astronomy or about art or about literature um, and get them circulated to the four corners of, of Europe. Um, but at the same time, now you've got the major like source of knowledge, the Catholic Church, which is sort of like been responsible for the dissemination of knowledge for centuries at this point through the monasteries, through the cathedrals, um, and through sort of like their formal education in Latin and in biblical studies. Um, now that whole institution has been seriously undermined in a way that has never happened before. There is an alternative to mainline Catholic Christianity for the first time ever, um, at least in Western Europe. And between these two forces, the sort of rise of science and the decline of like Catholicism, a lot of thinkers are starting to question what they think they know. And that includes Descartes. Um, but Descartes a little bit down the pike. There's one other major thing we need to talk about before we get to Descartes. Um, see, when I was saying, talking about science, like in terms of the Renaissance, I was mostly focused on art because that's the thing that we primarily associate it with. Um, but throughout the 16th century, like especially after the High Renaissance, after the Protestant Reformation, increasingly we're seeing scientists who are making breakthroughs in other areas, especially astronomy. Um, first, in the 16th century, we see Copernicus. And Copernicus is the first guy in a long, long time to cast doubt on the fact that the Earth is the center of the universe. See, Catholic teaching is that the Earth is the center of the universe. God made Earth, God put humans on Earth, humans are like the primary, you know, inheritors of creation. The universe literally circulates around us, according to Catholic teaching. Now keep in mind this is not biblical, like there are a couple of passages that might point in this direction, but it's not entirely clear. The Jews just were not interested on cosmogony on that level. Um, the Greeks, however, saw the world as the center of the universe, and when Catholicism basically jumped in bed with Plato and Aristotle and the Neoplatonists way back in the 4th and 5th centuries, um, they basically accepted the Neoplatonist assumption that the Earth was the center of the universe as well. This is the model on which we are operating. Um, but in the 16th century, Copernicus suggests maybe, like not saying it is, not saying it's not, 
But maybe the world isn't the center of the universe. Maybe that weird phenomenon we've been observing where, like, Mars and Jupiter go backwards at certain times during the year, maybe that's an indication that they're not actually just going in circles around the Earth, but maybe the Earth is actually going around the Sun. Maybe everything is going around the Sun. Um, and this has some pretty convenient astronomical explanations. This this can successfully square with the math a little bit better than most of the really weird explanations we've come up with so far. So much so that within the next 50 or 60 years, this punk named Galileo Galilei jumps on this and goes farther than Copernicus. Where Copernicus was like, this is just, you know, a theoretical thing. Like, I'm not saying it is, but what if the world went around the sun, not the other way around? Galileo's like, of course, yeah, Earth definitely goes around the sun. There's no other way to explain it. Anyone who says that the sun goes around the Earth is an idiot. Then the Catholic Church does not take kindly to this. And in their defense, Galileo is an absolute punk about it. Like, the church basically clamps down on Galileo. They're like, all right, quit quick publishing treatises, like, we're watching you, and Galileo's like, here is this new book that I just wrote, in which I explain how dumb the Catholic Church is. Um, so the Catholic Church confines him to house arrest, and he dies ignominiously um, with all of his books officially banned by the Catholic Church. And let me just sort of clarify this this is the situation that Descartes sort of comes into Descartes like Galileo is primarily writing in the 16th century or 17th century for Descartes um, considerably after Copernicus but he has literally watched this whole thing with Galileo play out this is also the height of the Catholic Inquisition um, like the Spanish Inquisition, no one expects the Spanish Inquisition, all of the torturing of Jews and people who, you know, are supposedly heretics. Um, this is very much when that's picking up. Because remember, at this exact moment, like not only are scientists starting to get, you know, uppity about their findings, but the Protestant Reformation is also running rampant. So the Catholic Church is desperately trying to quash it however they can, which frequently means, like, beating the crap out of people who do not profess Catholicism. Um, so right now, Catholicism is really touchy and does not want to mess around, and at the same time, science is picking up speed and starting to really challenge a lot of what Catholicism has to say. And Descartes is looking at this and saying, you know, Galileo's probably right. Like, the things that the Catholic Church has been teaching for all of this time may not in fact be, you know, the capital T truth, the truth of reality as we see it around us. Um, what's more, if Catholicism is going to quash science in its cradle, like if they're going to step on anyone who is trying to, you know, conduct scientific examination or collecting data or experimentation, that's going to be really bad. And Descartes wants to emphasize the value of science. Um, he is trying to sort of like make a place in this world for both science and Catholicism. Like Aquinas, he is trying to say that r r rationality, science, and revelation, religion, that these are two compatible things. 
Um, but where Aquinas was very much about justifying the truths of Revelation using scientific evidence, Descartes is more about justifying scientific evidence by saying that there's a place for it within Revelation, by saying that there's no contradiction with the Bible and the other teachings. Um, and importantly, Galileo tried to do the same thing. Like, after he was done being quite a punk, um, he definitely published at least one treatise, which is like, why my system of the universe does not conflict with Catholic teaching. Like, this is what the Bible says, this is what I say, Bible doesn't say anything about the sun going around the earth, therefore, why are you mad at me? But of course, that didn't change anything, it was a little too late, he had a little bit too much bad blood. Descartes is trying to avoid this, though. He does not want to end up in house arrest. So Descartes plays it careful. Um, Descartes publishes two books. One is the Discourse on Method, which we do not read in here. And in the Discourse on Method, he is basically talking about how awesome science is. Um, he basically explains that he has gone all over Europe, he has talked to great scientists, he is, you know, he is himself a great mathematician. Um, you probably know of him insofar as that grid that you were forced to do algebra problems on for a while there, like y equals 3x plus 2. Um, you plot that on the graph and it's just a line that goes at a certain angle and you got to figure all that out. Well, that graph is called the Cartesian Plane because Descartes invented it. Um, in fact, Descartes' great claim to fame as a mathematician was trying to square algebra and geometry. He basically said that, you know, it's all one math, so we really shouldn't have a problem being able to plot lines and angles and figures on a two-dimensional plane. So let's just create an algebraic system that allows us to do that on, in space, and thus, you know, the Cartesian plane. Um, but importantly, in all of his travels and all of his studies and all of his explorations and all of his sort of like groundbreaking mathematical uh, ex like examinations, he kind of realized that, you know, in order to progress, in order for us to sort of like get more knowledge, to be able to make more knowledge, we very much had to challenge the Catholic Church and its assumptions. So the discourse on method is about what that method might look like, um, how you can create knowledge, um, how do you sort of get from I don't know what is happening to I have a theory about why this is the case. Um, and in that way, along with Francis Bacon and Galileo, he is one of the major founders of the scientific method as we have it today. Um, Bacon's primary contribution was he wanted to insist on experimentation. Like Bacon wanted scientists in laboratories like performing experiments all the time. He writes about how awesome this would be in his New Atlantis. Um, he sort of puts down the whole experimentation as core to the scientific process. But for Descartes, he was much more emphasizing the experiential part. Um, scientists should seek out data, seek out experience, seek out new understandings of the world. It is very much Descartes who suggests that we start with nothing but a hypothesis, take nothing for granted, and then through observation and experience come to conclusions before going through the cycle again. Um, that's very much his idea and his contribution. 
But this is only the one of his treatises, the Discourse, which again, we're not going to read in here. It is in our textbook, feel free to look it over, it would make a great extra credit assignment. Um, it is fairly breezy, arguably even breezier than the Meditations. Um, but the Meditations is the one we're reading in here, because it is the more directly philosophical, and the one that is more directly related to the stuff that we study in here. See, the two books that he wrote, The Discourse on Method and The Meditations, were geared to entirely different purposes. Um, the Discourse on Method was written to scientists, contemporaries, lay people, basically anyone who wanted to read as a sort of apology and justification for science. But The Meditations was written specifically to the Catholic Church and to the clergy and to the scholars in the Catholic world, basically saying... Here is a philosophical approach that allows and encourages science within the confines of what the church already teaches. And importantly, he wrote these two books in two different languages. The Discourse on Method he wrote in French, which was the spoken language in France at the time. Um, anyone who was literate probably could have read this if they lived in France. Um, and because, again, French culture had a fairly wide... Um, sort of application, chances are people in Britain and Germany and all over Europe were able to read this as well. Um, but the meditations were written in Latin. And Latin has not stopped being the language of scholars. Um, but Latin, like, Latin was the language that all monks, all priests, all clergy spoke um, for literally all of the medieval period in philosophy and history. Um, like, if you were literate, then you specifically read and wrote in Latin. There, there was very little written in other languages at this point, um, unless they were ex explicitly geared to, you know, the public, the common folk. Um, but this kind of reveals what Descartes is doing. Like, what language you are speaking and writing in actually makes a big difference now. It's a political thing. Um, one of the big things that Luther did when he started the Protestant Reformation, one of the things that he very much emphasized and other Protestant reformers did the same, they translated the Bible into the vernacular for what is probably the first time in most cases. Like there were a couple of precedents like Wycliffe and Huss who had sort of emphasized let's, let's translate the Bible into English or German or you know other languages that everybody can speak. Um, but Luther really popularized it, and because the printing press had existed at this point, he could do it, too. Like, he published the Bible in German, and then got German Bibles to all of his churches. Um, likewise, when Henry VIII insisted on, you know, we were going to do English, and we're going to do the Anglican Church, it doesn't take a whole lot of time before King James pub uh, sort of authorizes his own translation, P.S., the King James Version, um, and this becomes the dominant biblical translation in England. But notice that there's a political thing here. Like, if you are speaking Latin, you are going along with the will of the Catholic Church. If you are writing and speaking in whatever the local vernacular language is, then you are sort of bypassing them. You are sort of flaunting their will. Descartes is trying to argue here that there shouldn't be a conflict. This doesn't have to be political. Um, but, at the same time, the two texts are very different. Um, the French text is meant to be read by everyone. It's meant to sort of defend and hold up science. Whereas this Latin text is much more geared to speaking directly to the Catholic Church, the clergy, and convincing them 
that science isn't as bad as they think and that maybe they need to check their own math in order to sort of stand so strongly on their opinions. And I want you to keep that in mind as we read through this text because it actually informs a lot of what's going on here. Descartes is walking on eggshells here and he knows it and you can see it. Like he is being extremely careful in the way that he phrases things and explains things because he knows that he could, if he goes, if he takes a wrong step, end up under house arrest and in exactly the same trouble that Galileo was in only a few years before. And he doesn't want that. So this is his sort of like middle work, his way of bridging these two perspectives, his way of sort of speaking to a now paranoid and possibly antagonistic Catholicism and reconciling it with these new developments in science that are otherwise likely to get quashed or stamped down. Um, and notice how he does it. Um, notice that this is a radically different text from what we've been reading in the past. It is totally different from Aquinas. Um, you'll remember that Aquinas starts out by saying, you know, like, we can trust the truth of the Bible, but we're not going to, like, take it for granted because you can't convince atheists this way, so we're going to start with our senses, but we're going to justify the existence of God as our first action. It takes to meditation three before Descartes can confidently say anything about God. Aquinas is confidently dealing with all of the philosophers of his time, even from like the first question, the second question, the third question. Descartes, on, by contrast, doesn't really address a lot of contemporary philosophers, not explicitly. Um, he is very much interacting with the history of philosophy. We are going to see philosophical arguments we've seen before come up fairly frequently in this text. Um, but Descartes being quiet about it. Descartes is presenting this as though it's completely new, from whole cloth. So notice how he starts his first meditation. First off, he calls it concerning those things that can be called into doubt. We will be dealing with doubt a lot in this text. Now he starts, Several years have now passed since I first realized how numerous were the false opinions that in my youth I had taken to be true, and thus how doubtful were all those that I had subsequently built upon them. And thus I realized that once in my life I had to raise everything to the ground and begin again from the original foundations if I wanted to establish anything firm and lasting in the sciences. But the task seemed enormous, and I was waiting until I reached a point in my life that was so timely that no more suitable time for undertaking these plans of action would come to pass. For this reason I procrastinated for so long that I would henceforth be at fault were I to waste the time that remains for carrying out the project by brooding over it. Accordingly, I have today suitably freed my mind of all cares, secured for myself a period of leisurely tranquility, and am withdrawing into solitude. At last, I will apply myself earnestly and unreservedly to this general demolition of my opinions. Now notice that Descartes starts out here from the assumption that, first, he knows a bunch of stuff, but second, that that knowledge isn't necessarily reliable. He is already basically questioning established tradition, established knowledge, established truth. He is saying that some of those things have proven deceptive to me, and as a result, the only way to proceed with science is to just level it all, start from scratch, and see what in fact we can actually trust and what in fact we actually know. Um, so, he goes on. 
Yet to bring this about, I will not need to show that all my opinions are false, which is perhaps something I could never accomplish. But reason now persuades me that I should withhold my assent no less carefully from opinions that are not completely certain and indubitable than I would from those that are patently false. For this reason, it will suffice for the rejection of all of these opinions if I find in each of them some reason for doubt. Nor, therefore, need I survey each opinion individually, a task that would be endless. Rather, because undermining the foundations will cause whatever has been built upon them to crumble of its own accord, I will attack straight away those principles which supported everything I once believed. And the basic categories of this are fairly straightforward. The first thing, and perhaps the most important thing that he needs to confront, is the senses. His third paragraph says, Surely whatever I had admitted until now as most true, I received either from the senses or through the senses. However, I have noticed that the senses are sometimes deceptive, and it is a mark of prudence never to place our complete trust in those who have deceived us even once. Notice that like Aquinas, Descartes agrees, all knowledge comes from the senses. Almost everything that Descartes knows, he has gotten either from the senses or through the senses. Either he has learned it by looking at the world and interacting with it, or he has learned it through hearing somebody else talk about it. But, importantly, the senses aren't necessarily reliable. They are untrustworthy. They are deceptive. There have been multiple times that he has thought something that turned out not to be true. And he gives us a few examples. First off, insanity. Like, there are tons of people out there who believe that reality is not the way that reality is. They believe that they, their heads are gourds, or that they are made of glass, or any number of things. These fairly dramatic examples. Um, but even though, you know, Descartes is not himself insane, and there is a remarkable difference between sanity and insanity, there's also other issues, specifically dreaming. Descartes observes that, you know, for eight hours a night, he is subjected to a series of impressions and experiences that have no basis in reality. And the dreamer can very rarely tell when they are, are dreaming or when they are not dreaming. Like, we all generally have a pretty good understanding of what is real when we are awake, but when we are dreaming, we frequently think things are real that aren't. Um, we believe we're falling, and when we are lying in bed, we believe that we are, you know, standing in our underpants in front of our high school class, when in fact, again, we are in our bedrooms. Um, this happens fairly frequently, and thus leads Descartes to question, can we rely on the senses as we have them now? What is to prevent us from thinking that things are real, when in fact we are just basically dreaming once again? So rather than assert that you know, what we see, what we experience is not real, the way that, say, Plato would with his allegory of the cave, or, for that matter, arguing that what we see is real and there is a fundamental difference between dreaming and reality, he suspends his judgment. And this is an important move for Descartes. He's going to do this a lot, especially in this first meditation. Descartes is not insisting that everything that we experience is not true. He is saying he can't tell for sure whether it's true or not. He doesn't know. Um, it is unclear. So let us assume then, for the sake of argument, that we are dreaming, and that such particulars as these are not true, that we are opening our eyes, moving our head, extending our hands. Perhaps we do not even have such hands or any such body at all. 
Nevertheless, it surely must be admitted that the things seen during slumber are, as it were, like painted images, which could only have been produced in the likeness of true things, and that therefore at least these general things, eyes, head, hands, and the whole body, are not imaginary things, but are true and exist. In short, he goes on to argue that even though we do sort of subject ourselves to fictions, there are fictions based on fact, for the most part. We do not have some, like, crazy, impossibly infinite creative ability to just make stuff out of nothing. Um, even painters who paint, like, centaurs or satyrs or fanciful animals like chimeras are basically painting various animals' body parts stuck together. Um, no painter is so imaginative to make something brand new, and even if they were, they'd have to make it out of colors that we recognize and already know. Um, you can't just make up a new color um, without radically altering the way that our experience and vision works. Um, so Descartes is basically saying here, on the one hand, we... Let us assume that we are, in fact, dreaming. Let us assume that everything that we think we know is false until we can prove otherwise. Um, but on the flip side, let us also acknowledge that everything that we do know, everything that we do have, it comes from somewhere. There is some source to our knowledge, um, which is something we will come back to. Now, this doesn't necessarily rule out all knowledge, though. Like, Descartes points out that this means that there's mathematical truths, especially um, the understanding of objects in terms of their extension, the amount of space that they take up. Um, this stuff doesn't necessarily have anything to do with our senses. Like, 2 plus 2 equals 4, no matter whether we're asleep or awake, in theory. But can we really be sure that that, too, is the case? Um, he stresses in the first full paragraph on page 534, column 2, Be that as it may, there is fixed in my mind a certain opinion of long-standing, namely that there exists a God who is able to do anything and by whom I, such as I am, have been created. How do I know that he did not bring it about that there is no earth at all, no heavens, no extended thing, no shape, no size, no place, and yet bringing it about that all these things appear to me to exist precisely as they do now? Moreover, since I judge that others sometimes make mistakes in matters that they believe they know most perfectly, may I not, in like fashion, be deceived every time I add two and three, or count the sides of a square, or perform an even simpler operation, if that can be imagined? But perhaps God has not willed that I be deceived in this way, for he is said to be supremely good. Nonetheless, if it were repugnant to his goodness to have created me such that I be deceived all the time, it would also seem foreign to that same goodness to permit me to be deceived even occasionally." but we cannot make this last assertion. Notice how careful he is here. On the one hand, he's saying, okay, so I generally believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4, 2 plus 3 equals 5. Like, this does not rely on the senses. It's a, it's a more basic, a simpler kind of knowledge. But if we believe that God exists, and of course Descartes, you know, has this idea of God as this infinitely powerful, infinitely capable being, um, this being who can, like, influence your thoughts and who can do anything with the world, um, if we believe in God, then we have to allow for the possibility that there exists a being that can deceive us about something even as basic as 2 plus 2 equals 4. And if we allow for the possibility of such a being, then once again we are in a state of doubt. We can't be 100% sure that we are not being deceived, that some 
powerful being hasn't tricked us into thinking that 2 plus 2 equals 4. But notice that he anticipates the argument of the church at this point. Well, God is good, the church would say. No being with that power, no supremely perfect being, could possibly deceive intentionally. But Descartes has his rebuttal to this. Maybe it is not within God's power to will us all to be deceived all the time because of his supreme goodness, but then why are we deceived at all? Um, if, in fact, God wills us not to be deceived, then why do we think that we are awake when we are dreaming? Why do we think that the sun is this tiny little, like, dime-shaped ball in the sky when, in fact, the scientists seem to think that it's giant and, like, made of fire? Um, why do you know, things look different from farther away. Like, there are tons of situations where people are deceived about the world around them. Um, if that is the case, how do you square that with this supposedly supremely good, all-powerful God? Um, instead, Descartes, once again, suspends his judgment. He says, okay, so we have to allow for the possibility that this really good, awesome, not deceiving God exists, but we also have to allow for the possibility that there is a God and this God is deceptive. Um, as he says, I am forced to admit that there is nothing among the things I once believed to be true which it is not permissible to doubt. Everything can be doubted, says Descartes, especially if we distrust God. Um, and... At, for the sake of argument, Descartes going to go one step further. He is going to say in the first full paragraph on page 535, I will suppose not a supremely good God, the source of truth, but rather an evil genius, supremely powerful and clever, who has directed his entire effort at deceiving me. I will regard the heavens, the earth, the air, the colors, shapes, sounds, and all external things as nothing but the bedeviling hoaxes of my dreams with which he lays snares for my credulity. I will regard myself as not having hands or eyes or flesh or blood or any senses, but as nevertheless falsely believing that I possess all these things. Note that he is not that saying that like this evil genius definitely exists. Again, we are suspending judgment here. Instead, because we don't know, we cannot, like, beyond the pale of doubt, argue that there is a supremely good who does not deceive us because we are, in fact, from time to time deceived, he has to conclude the opposite. That instead, we have to allow for the possibility that there is a God and that that God is willfully deceiving us and we cannot have faith in our knowledge unless it is somehow, like beyond even that evil genius's power to deceive us. Because even 2 plus 2 equals 4 could be a bad idea placed in our minds by this deceiver. It could not be true. Um, so this is the sort of place where Descartes starts his project. This radical, systematic doubt, as we philosophers like to call it. Um, he is going to throw out everything he thinks he knows literally everything because he cannot find solid ground to base anything on at this point everything that he gets from the senses is untrustworthy because the senses frequently deceive us everything that rationality tends to confirm things like math or geometry he is going to throw that out too because it's possible that there is this evil genius deceiving him so there's nothing left Nothing to rest on, he is going to start from a position that he knows nothing.
And this is perhaps the single most famous part of Descartes' whole project here. The idea that he is going to break down everything that has been said before. Aristotle, Plato, Augustine, Aquinas, all of the philosophy, all of the science, all of the religious teaching, everything, and start from scratch. Start from nothing. And then see what he can find. Now, there are a couple things that I want to stress before we move on to the things that he does, in fact, track down and figure out. First off, I want to stress that this is so different from what Aquinas is doing. Like, Aquinas assumes the entire human experience when he goes into his argument for the existence of God. Like, he doesn't assume God's existence, he just assumes the existence of the world and argues that God must exist as, you know, a consequence. Which is honestly better than a lot of the medieval philosophers are willing to do. Um, he is willing to doubt more than most of the medieval philosophers are often willing to. Um, but Descartes goes radically beyond that. Descartes questions even his senses, which Aquinas is unwilling to do. Um, like, Aquinas doesn't even think to judge that his senses are deceiving him. Um, Aquinas doesn't sort of rope in the conclusions that Descartes has about how, like, dreams or insanity cause us to doubt our own senses, um, much less doubting, you know, rationality itself as some perverted tool um, that some deceiver has implanted in us. Um, that's the first thing to stress here. Like, Descartes is approaching this from an almost atheistic perspective, which is not to say that he is an atheist or that he's not an atheist, just that in order for, to do knowledge, Descartes is arguing that we have to start from scratch, knock it all out, make a conscious effort to reduce our knowledge, to question our knowledge, to re-evaluate and reconsider our knowledge. This is crucial to science, is what Descartes is saying. But the second thing I want to emphasize here, the other thing that is really important about this change is that Descartes' approach is not one where he's talking about what exists in the world. Like, that is part and parcel of it. He is trying to, you know, demonstrate that God exists and that, you know, the stuff that he sees exists and that science can get knowledge about the world. But instead, his primary goal here is about knowledge itself. The primary question he is grappling with is, can we trust our senses? Um, in fact, can we trust any of our knowledge, but the senses primarily? Because again, the senses are sort of the source of all our information and all of our knowledge, even by Descartes' admission, um, though there are exceptions for Descartes. Um, but notice that this isn't about, like, reality. This is what we, in the biz, call the epistemological turn. And nothing in philosophy is going to be the same after this. Where Plato was arguing about, like, what is piety? What is justice? What is goodness? What is God-like? What do the gods want from us? What is the world structured like? What is the world include? What, is it, what does it do? How does it work? These are metaphysical questions. What is reality like? What is real, for that matter? By contrast, Descartes' questions are not metaphysical. He is not asking what is real and what is false, what exists and what does not exist. Only secondarily is he asking those questions. Instead, what he is primarily interested in is how do we know it? How do my senses work? How does my logic work? How do, does my reason work? How does knowledge itself work? And a large part of this is because he is interested in science. He is interested in the method. 
He is interested in the way that we get knowledge, much more than he is in the actual knowledge that we get. Remember that at this point, there's basically like, you've got the Catholic Church saying that, you know, the world exists, but it is, you know, going around this, or it is at the center of the universe and the sun goes around it, whereas Galileo was saying, yes, the world exists, but it is going around the sun, not the other way around. Like, these are questions about reality. They are metaphysical questions from the perspective of the philosopher, as much as they are also astronomical questions and physics questions and so on and so forth. Um, but the key problem here isn't the truths, the, like, is one true or is the other true? The question is, how do you get truth? And that's what Descartes is speaking to, and that's what philosophers since Descartes are going to be primarily obsessed with. Like, there's no going back to metaphysics at this point. It's very difficult for us to make a metaphysical claim if we do not have a decent understanding of how metaphysical claims are made. Um, and as a result, for the next 500 years of philosophical history, we're going to be very, very much more concerned with how our senses and our knowledge and our brains basically process information and how they produce information, how we get to fact from, you know, the weird nexus of emotions and sensations that we seem to have, rather than what, it ex what exactly those facts might be. Um, we are stuck in our brains since Descartes. We are very keenly aware of the limits of our own perspective. Um, and that's what Descartes is emphasizing here. Not the stuff we can know, but the stuff we can't. The stuff that is beyond our ability to know. And Hume will stress this as well, and Nietzsche and Sartre will do the same. In all of, our, in all of these cases, we are very much trapped in our own perspective. We are trying to figure out how we bridge the gap between what is going on in my brain, what is going on in my mind, and what is going on in the world beyond it. We need to understand that relationship before we can understand the world as it is out there. Um, but notice, too, that the first thing that Descartes actually is able to prove also follows this idea. Like, this is simultaneously this the like most obvious proof of what Descartes has to say as well as being like the natural consequence of the system that Descartes has built here where he is questioning his knowledge so in meditation two he's you know going back into the meditation he has cast off all of his knowledge he is systematically doubting everything and he asks himself what is there that I can know and the last paragraph in column two on page 535, he says, How do I know there is not something else, over and above all those things that I have just reviewed, concerning which there is not even the slightest occasion for doubt? Is there not some god, or by whatever name I might call him, who instills these very thoughts in me? But why would I think that, since I myself could perhaps be the author of these thoughts? He is saying, Can I really believe in God? What if I made God up? But then he concludes, Am I not then at least something? But I have already denied that I have any senses in any body. Still, I hesitate for what follows from this. Am I so tied to a body and to the senses that I cannot exist without them? But I have persuaded myself there is absolutely nothing in the world, no sky, no earth, no minds, no bodies. Is it then the case that I too do not exist? But doubtless, I did exist if I persuaded myself of something. But there is some deceiver or other who is supremely powerful and supremely sly and who is always deliberately deceiving me. 
Then too, there is no doubt that I exist, if he is deceiving me. And let him do his best at deception. He will never bring it about that I am nothing, so long I sh as I shall think that I am something. Thus, after everything has been most carefully weighed, it must finally be established that this pronouncement, I am, I exist, is necessarily true every time I utter it or conceive it in my mind. This is the famous claim of René Descartes, probably the most famous single line in all of philosophy. I think, therefore I am. In the Latin, as we have it here, cogito ergo sum, thinking, therefore being. If I'm being deceived, if I am making shit up, if I am coming up with this stuff all on my own, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, I have to be here to be deceived or to, you know, conjure up these fantasies or for that matter, just to doubt. No matter how you slice it, no matter what sort of weird process of knowledge or process of deception or process of Ill illusion is happening, no matter what it is, I have to be here in order to be deceived or deluded or to doubt. I have to exist. I think, therefore, I am. I must be. Doubt everything else. Doubt that I have a body. Doubt that there is a world. Doubt that there is a God. Doubt that God is good. Doubt everything. You still, at the end of the day, have to conclude necessarily, without question, that I exist. And thus the first thing that Descartes can actually prove, the first thing that he actually knows in this whole grand system of systematic doubt is the fact that he himself must exist. Necessarily, no question about it. If the central question in this text is, what can we know and can we trust our senses, then the first thing that we can in fact know and trust is the fact that we ourselves exist. But of course this brings up new questions, specifically what the heck is an I in this case? Who am I? Um, and of course Descartes naturally attends to the usual typical definition of man man is the rational animal but he's not having any of it because now he has to understand what a rash what rationality is and what an animal is that's not something that he is able to do at this point because remember the world doesn't exist at this point the only thing we know is that i descartes exists um so he has to go through a different method and his conclusion ultimately is i am a thinking thing like, I can't prove for sure, sure that I have a body, that I have hands, that I have a head, that I, you know, am the person who I look like when I look in the mirror. All of that could be deception. The senses could still be deceiving me. We do not trust what the senses have to say at this point in time because they have deceived us before and anyone who deceives you even once should not be trusted. But he is thinking. That's something that we know belongs to the eye because that was the thing that we watched happen that belonged to the eye and proved that the eye existed. And like Aquinas with his sort of placeholder name, God, for whatever created the universe, Descartes is basically saying that the placeholder name I refers to whatever thing it is that's doing the thinking that we are observing. And he ultimately boils this down to its powers. So if you look on page 537, the one full paragraph in the middle of the first column, it says, what then am I? A thing that thinks. What is that? A thing that doubts, understands, affirms, denies, will, wills, 
refuses, and that also imagines and senses. These are the key characteristics of the thinking thing. These are the powers that Descartes has that he knows for certain that he has. And these are the powers that he observes in himself. He is doubting. He has observed himself doubting. He knows that he must exist because he is doubting. He understands, like he understands the fact that he exists at this point, although that is admittedly the only thing that he understands at this point, besides sort of the relations between ideas, like the fact that he understands that he cannot trust his senses. Um, he affirms and denies. He can say, yes, for certain I exist, and yet at the same time say, I did not, like, create myself. I am not an illusion. I deny that I do not exist. He can will and refuse, which is something we'll be getting into in a little bit. In a little bit, And we also have imagining and sensing. And these are a little tricky. Like, imagining and sensing seem kind of out of place here. Um, because on the one hand, like, we are doubting the senses. So why do we suddenly know that we can sense, even though we doubt sensation? But importantly for Descartes, this just means that he's getting information from someplace. Like, he doesn't know whether the information is true or not. He doesn't know where the information is coming from. All he knows is that he's got, like, some weird receptacle where, you know, sense data comes in on. That's all he's saying here. Like, if he sees something blue, whether or not there is, in fact, a blue thing in front of him, he knows that he sees blue. Like, he senses blue. Um, the worst that he can say is the word is wrong and it isn't applicable to the thing that he is seeing, but it doesn't change the fact that he is seeing something. Um, imagination is sort of the secondary process here. Imagination allows him to form ideas in a way that appeals to the senses, but is not itself sensed. So, like, I can imagine God, I can imagine a deceiver. Um, either way, it doesn't need to be before me in order for me to imagine it. But when I imagine it, I form an image of it, a sensible image, so to speak, even though it is not in the senses that it is made. It is crafted after senses, not necessarily by senses. Um, and to sort of, like encapsulate this and also explain how we are not even close to done he uses this elaborate metaphor of the wax um now the wax he notices like he's got this piece of wax by the fire as he's holding it and it smells a certain way like it smells like the honeycomb like it just came from the honeycomb it has this like pale yellowish color um it makes a noise when he raps on it uh, because it's all hard and like stiff um, but then all he has to do is bring it next to the fire and all of those characteristics change. It no longer smells like the honeycomb. It is no longer firm and hard in his hands, but soft and gooey. It no longer wraps when he taps on it and it doesn't even have the same yellowish color. Like it fades, it becomes more pale. What Descartes is emphasizing here is that whatever it is that caused him to think, ah, this is wax must have been because of the senses. Like, we recognize objects in the world because we use our senses to identify. Right now I am looking at my computer screen, and I know that it is my computer screen because it looks exactly like my computer screen has always looked. Um, but for Descartes, he notices that the wax has changed every one of its characteristics. It no longer looks the same, it no longer smells the same, it no longer tastes the same, it no longer feels the same, it no longer sounds the same. And yet we think it is the same object. We have identified somehow that this wax is the same wax in its 
first state when it was hard and yellow and smelled nice as it is in the second state when it is not hard, not yellow, and doesn't smell nice. Um, importantly, like if, for example, I had a piece of wax in my classroom and I brought it out in my podium and I was like, here, this is wax. And then I left the room and some stinker in my class picked up the wax and put it next to the heater until it melted and left it on my desk. If I came back and had not seen the process by which the wax had gone from a solid to a liquid, I would be totally justified if I came back and said, where did my wax go? And all of my students who had seen the process transpire could point to it on my desk and say, that, that is the wax. And I'd be like, no, it isn't. It's not anything like what I had. Like, every characteristic that defined the object as I knew it is now gone. So how is that the same object? How can I identify that as the same object? How can I identify the characteristics of anything if they're in fact subject to change? But Descartes notices that we do. Like, we have no problem doing this. We have no problem saying that is the exact same wax, even though there is no characteristic in common with it. And therefore, he concludes that what makes the wax wax has nothing to do with the object and has everything to do with our minds. We form our understanding of the object not through sensation, but through judgment. Sensation is something that goes on outside of us. Judgment is something that goes on inside of us, as a thinking thing in our minds. And importantly for Descartes, this is the key where things are going to get hairy. See, sensation is not something that has a normative value on it. Like, I see blue is not a statement that can be proven true or false. All that we can know is that it's that you see blue. Like, it is not necessarily wrong to say that I see blue when you see blue. It is not, you know, an error to say I see blue when you see blue. Now, whether or not the thing in front of you is actually blue or whether your eyes are perceiving it differently, like, you know, everybody has asked, do we see colors the same way? Like, it's a good question. Do you? Don't know. Can't prove it. Certainly no way for us to, to argue one way or the other. But what I can say is whatever you see is whatever you see. Like, if I am hallucinating that there is a small man in my wall who is waving to me from beyond my computer screen, you cannot question that. Like, there's probably not a little man in the wall. I'm probably hallucinating. What have I eaten today? But it doesn't change the fact that I, th I see the little man. I think the little man is there. I perceive the little man. Where things get tricky is when I say, therefore, the little man exists. See, I can imagine all sorts of things. I can get sensations from all sorts of things, but it is only when I apply my judgment to it that it goes either right or wrong, that it can be true or false. I see a little man on the wall is a necessarily true statement, assuming I'm not lying. Um, like, you cannot question that. You can say there is no little man in the wall, and that's a completely different statement. The truth of my statement and the truth of your statement have nothing to do with each other. I see the little man, you, but there is no little man. These are perfectly compatible statements. But importantly for Descartes, the key difference is when I go from I see a little man to there is a little man in the wall. That is the act of judgment. That is going from, I am simply getting sense data from around me, through my eyes or through my mind, even though we do not trust our eyes yet, 
to I believe something is true about the world. That is the jump from the epistemological claim, I see X, to the metaphysical claim, X exists. And this is important for our next meditation. Now, at this point, remember, we have successfully systematically doubted everything. We have reduced all of our assumptions to nothing. We are questioning everything that we believe. We have come to the first one thing that we can believe absolutely without the shadow of a doubt, and that is that I exist. Now it's time to start talking about, like, what else exists. And importantly, the linchpin idea here is God. You'll remember when we were talking in Meditation 1 just a moment ago about like all of our ideas and where they all come from and what we can trust and what we cannot trust. We initially said, ruled out the senses. Like senses are untrustworthy. Everyone knows the senses are untrustworthy. There's a whole bunch of cases where we are deceived by the senses. So the senses are right out. But then Descartes said, well, what about like 2 plus 3 equals 5? What about 2 plus 2 equals 4? What about basic mathematical truths, geometry, algebra, that stuff? Isn't that still true because it doesn't rely on the senses? But the reason he ultimately doubted it was because God could potentially deceive us. Make us think that rationality was true when it in fact wasn't. Make us believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4 when in fact it doesn't. Um, if there is some omnipotent being, some being that can mess with our brains, we need to confront that first. Because if we can confront that, if we can rule out the possibility of God like tinkering with our brains and causing us to believe nonsense, then we can get math back and we can get geometry back and we can get basically all of that knowledge that had nothing to do with the senses back and be able to work with it going forward. So we have to talk about God. And he has an idea of God. Remember, at this point, like, he is just cataloging his ideas. It is not wrong to say, I have an idea of God, in the same way that it is not wrong for me to say, I, have a, I see a little man in the wall. It's just wrong for me to say that the little man in the wall exists. Descartes has an idea of God. He knows that. That is without question. That is not untrue. Um, by positing that he, has, he is a thinking thing, he acknowledges that he, idea, he has ideas. The question is, does he will them, does he affirm them to be true? Um, but he also has a whole bunch of other ideas. Like, he has tons of ideas, and any one of us also has tons of ideas. Like, sure, we have the idea of God, because we've been talking about it in this class so much, and you've probably heard about this idea from, from elsewhere. Um, maybe your parents, maybe church, maybe television, maybe who knows. Um, but you also have tons of other ideas. Like, you have the idea of a hamburger, you have the idea of, like, your refrigerator, or you have the idea of clouds and trees and plants and dogs and cats and you know, elephants and platypuses and the ocean and, like, tons of stuff. You also have ideas of things that are a little bit more abstract, stuff like Plato would like to talk about, stuff like justice or piety or goodness. Um, and you have ideas of things that you are pretty sure don't exist, ideas like the Loch Ness Monster or unicorns or space aliens, um, stuff that, you know, you really don't have a whole heck of a lot of evidence of, but people have talked about and possibly even invented, and you have those ideas as well. Now, importantly for Descartes, he wants to track where those ideas all came from. Because at this point, there's three possibilities for the source of ideas. There is obviously himself. Um, like, 
we have proven that Descartes himself exists. We know that he has all of these powers of thinking and willing and affirming and denying and understanding and sensing and imagining and all that. Um, he can theoretically conjure up ideas, give them to himself. Um, likewise, the sort of basic assumption that we all make about the world is that the world is where we get these ideas from. Um, like, I can think of a hamburger because I have seen hamburgers in real life. Um, I can think of the ocean because I have been to the ocean, or I have seen pictures of it, or anything like that. Um, I can imagine and think of the Eiffel Tower because I have been to the Eiffel Tower, or I have seen the Eiffel Tower, or I have, you know, seen it in pictures, or, you know, people have described it to me, whatever. All of these ideas probably come from the real world. This is the basic assumption we make about it. The like most simple un explanation for where did I get the idea of a hamburger is I got it from actual hamburgers. I got my idea of the Eiffel Tower from the actual Eiffel Tower, even if I only know about it third hand. Um, I have an idea about the ocean because I have either been to the ocean and experienced it firsthand or because I've seen it secondhand on television or because I've heard about it from somebody else who has heard about it or seen it or whatever. In any case, the idea has come from the thing itself, the ocean. Hamburgers come from hamburgers, the Eiffel Tower from the Eiffel Tower, the ocean from the ocean. Easy peasy. But remember, at this point, we don't believe that the world exists. We can't be sure it does. All we know for sure is that we exist. So it could be from some external source. It could be from the world. It could be from some actual thing that exists. Or it might not be. Who knows? But it's possible. So source number one, I could have come up with it myself. Source number two, it came from the actual world. Source number three, it came from that omnipotent God guy we keep talking about. There could be some secondary being, some omnipotent person who like directly implants ideas in my brain, in my mind, in me, the thinking thing. Um, so Descartes kind of systematically goes through all of these ideas. So let's do the same. Where could we get the idea of hamburgers from? Well, it's possible that I made it up myself. Like, it could be that I, there aren't actually any hamburgers out in the world anywhere. I have just invented it based on understanding I have of myself. That would be a little weird, but Descartes says it's probably possible. Like, I am more real than a hamburger. I am more complicated than a hamburger. My thinking thing self could potentially have invented a hamburger from nothing. Like, it doesn't seem especially likely, because where would I, the thinking thing, which is immaterial, get an idea of a material object except from some kind of material world? Like, without a body, how could I possibly come up with something that is not just not like me, but also has a body? So, probably not me. More likely it comes from, you know, actual hamburgers, like we get the idea of hamburgers from actual hamburgers. That seems to make the most sense. But again, can't say for sure, because at this point we don't know that there's a world out there. We can only guess. And it's entirely possible as well that it could have come from God. Like, if God is as awesome as he says, then presumably, like, he could invent the idea of hamburgers and then make us think about hamburgers. Like, that's entirely possible. Are you hungry? I think I'm hungry. Maybe I should stop this lecture and go out to eat. Maybe you should. I don't know. Anywho, we could get the idea of hamburgers from any one of those sources. It is entirely possible in either case. So that does not help us. Um, so let's ignore hamburgers and move on. Thank God. Um, what about those abstractions, like goodness? Now, once again, if anything, this almost makes more sense. 
as something that I've invented myself. Like I could identify some characteristic that I have, like, you know, my ability to think or my ability to think well, and thus conclude that like there are these characteristics that I have, like goodness or wisdom or correct thinking, and then posit, okay, so there's this goodness. And I can think of goodness as coming from myself. Totally possible. Um, can it have come from the world? Also entirely possible. Maybe somebody told me about goodness. Maybe somebody explained it to me. Maybe Plato, you know, asked me a whole bunch of questions about it. Uh, maybe Socrates pinned me to the wall until I could define it. Um, also possible. Could I have gotten it from God? Absolutely. If God is as great or as big and important as he seems to be, then presumably he can come up with these ideas and plant them in my brain directly as well. So once again, not helpful. Move it out. We'll talk about something else. Now, what about, say, unicorns? Unicorns don't come from the world. Like, I could not have come up with the idea of a unicorn from observing an actual unicorn, because unicorns don't exist. But Descartes argues that in the case of unicorns or dragons or whatever, we typically just, like, put pieces together from things that already do exist to come up with these ideas. Um, so a unicorn is just a horse with a horn on its head. A dragon is just a lizard with wings that breathes fire. Like, all of these things I can see in the world somewhere. Like, I, I find lizards, and I find, you know, winged creatures like birds. Fire breathing is a little bit difficult, but, you know, I'd see flamethrowers, and there's always those salamanders who apparently dwell in fire. Um, like, we can conceive of fire plus lizard plus wings equals dragon. Um, could also have come from the world. Likewise, could have made it up myself, could be from God. Once again, not helpful. But what about the idea of God itself? See, God, as we understand him, is supremely perfect. He has, like, all objective reality. If you look on page 541, the bottom of that top paragraph, again, the idea that enables me to understand a supreme deity, eternal, infinite, omniscient, omnipotent, and creator of all things other than himself, clearly has more objective reality within it than do those things through which finite substances are displayed. So the world could not have given me the idea of God because the world is finite. Everything that we see in the world is finite. It passes away. It is temporal. It only exists in a certain space for a certain time. God, however, is eternal. He is infinite. So how could we get the idea of a, an eternal, infinite thing from temporal, finite things? That just doesn't make sense. An infinite thing has more objective reality, as Descartes puts it. You can't get to infinity from finitude. Um, you cannot extrapolate the existence of an infinite being given only experience of finite beings. It just doesn't make sense. Now, so we can't get the idea of God from the world. It, he cannot have come from the world. Like, sure, you get the idea of God from the world insofar as, like, you read the Bible and you hear about God, or you, you know, or hear about it from your parents and they tell you about God, or you hear about it in church, or you see it on TV or whatever. Doesn't matter. The idea must have come from someplace else. Like, they must have gotten it from somewhere. And the fact of the matter is, they could not have invented it because God, like I said, is infinite. How do you invent an infinite idea given only experience of finite things? The infinite thing has more objective reality and therefore requires something that the world cannot provide. So it can have come from the world. Now, could it have come from us? 
Descartes says maybe, but it would be really difficult because we would have to be infinite in order for that to be the case. And we don't think we are infinite. Like, there's no evidence that we are infinite. The, the, this thinking thing has limits. Like, we cannot think everything. Um, we cannot imagine everything. We certainly can't, like, just create stuff and make it appear in front of us. So we don't have omnipotence the way that God supposedly does. Um, and while it's possible, theoretically, that, like, maybe there's some part of ourselves that is separate from the thinking thing that we observe ourselves to be, some part of ourselves that is, like, locked away or hidden that has these powers, just we can't access them, well, you know, that doesn't make any difference. Like, at the end of the day, that's not us. Like, we are only the powers and abilities that we have access to. Um, if there's some other power, it's not us. It's something completely different. So we are out. Can't have come from us. Can't have come from the world. Because neither of those two things are infinite or pow supremely powerful or perfect in that sense. So what's left then? The only place that the idea of God could have come from is a being that is infinite, perfect, and supremely powerful. The only being that could come up with the idea of God is God. And therefore, Descartes concludes that God must exist. It is the only source that has enough objective reality to justify God's existence. It is the only place where we could have gotten the idea of an infinite thing. Now, he notices that there are several objections that can be raised here. One was the one that I mentioned before about, like, what if he created it himself? The other one that he stresses is, could we have gotten the idea of infinity from a finite thing? Could we have just said, like... F like give infinity we just make a not finite thing and therefore come up with infinity but Descartes says no that's not the case because when we negate things we always get our understanding of the lesser thing from the greater thing so take for example the difference between heat and cold one of these is a negative one of these is a positive um, obviously heat is the positive thing it is the thing that is missing when you have cold Cold is the absence of heat. Heat is not the absence of cold. Um, heat, even in a physical sense, is like electrons bopping around really quickly and it therefore stirs up the air and it makes it warmer. Um, therefore, heat is positive. It is a description of a state of affairs. Cold is a description of a state of absence. Cold is heat gone missing. Likewise, if you think of, say, life and death, Life is obviously the positive thing. Death is obviously the absence of life. Life is positive. Death is negative. The only way we have the idea of death, like the only way that we have the idea of cold, is from negating the positive thing. Life and heat. Heat is there. We understand cold as being the deprivation of it. Life is there. Death is what we understand as the deprivation of it. But follow that logic, and you come up with the conclusion that immortality is positive while mortality is negative immortality is the presence of life always and therefore we only understand mortality in terms of immortality we only understand that we die in terms of the fact that we could not die there is the possibility of extended life forever and mortality is just us wishing that we had that we must understand immortality in order to understand mortality, not the other way around.
And by that logic, the same is true about finity and infinity. An infinite thing must exist for, we to, for us to understand that a finite thing is finite. In order to understand that the finite thing is limited or that it is somehow like less, some, the idea that it is bounded in any way implies that we understand what an unbounded thing is. Therefore, in order to understand an idea of God as this perfect, infinite, eternal, supremely powerful being, there must in fact be a perfect, infinite, eternal, supremely powerful being. We can't have got there just by negating characteristics that we have. We cannot get to immortality by negating mortality. Rather, the immortal thing must have existed for us to be aware of the fact that we are mortal in the first place. And if that's the case, that means that there must necessarily be an infinite, like, perfect, supremely powerful being in order for us to have this idea of an infinite, perfect, supremely powerful being. Which means that in order for us to have the idea of God, God must already exist. The only place we could have gotten that idea from is God himself. Either directly or indirectly. Like through the medium of people telling us about this being that they have had direct experience of. And importantly for Descartes, he argues that it is likely directly. There is no reason to believe that it is past, like, in sort of impure, incorrect form from generation to generation. Presumably the idea would lose clout. Um, by contrast, he says that this idea... Um, on page 545 in the second full paragraph, he says, To be sure, it is not astonishing that in creating me, God should have endowed me with this idea, so that it would be like the mark of the craftsman impressed upon his work, although this mark need not be something distinct from the work itself. I have been trademarked by God. The idea that I bear of God is God's trademark on me, in short. And you'll notice that this argument bears a very striking resemblance to what Aquinas argued. Like, it's not exactly the same, but it has a lot of parallels. Descartes is basically saying, I observe this phenomenon, that I have this idea. Even though we doubt the senses, the fact that we have this idea is beyond sensation itself. It must have come from somewhere. And it couldn't come from an infinite regress. It couldn't have no source and just be like passed down over and over and over again from generation to generation with no possible source, no infinite regress. Therefore, the only being that could have created the idea, the only source where the idea could have come from is God. This is almost exactly the same structure of the arguments presented in each of Aquinas's five ways. God created the world as prime mover we see things moving in the world where did the movement come from because all things that move must have been moved by something else well there can't be an infinite regress you can't just have like movement starting movement forever therefore there must be a prime mover a first mover and we call it god well i have this idea of god it must have come from some idea or some being that has at least as much objective reality as this idea i could have gotten it from an idea that existed before sure absolutely but it can't be an infinite regress it can't just keep going forever and ever therefore the being that gave us the idea of infinity is god so this is descartes second proof the second thing that he knows god must exist in order for us to have this idea of god
But obviously, we are not done. For one thing, we still have that problem hanging over our head that we observed before. Namely, we are still occasionally deceived, even though we've supposedly got this supremely perfect, omnipotent God hanging around to prevent us from being deceived. So we will confront that in the next meditation. And we are still a long way away from proving that our senses have any reality or existence, which is kind of the core of this text. We still, at the end of the day, have to see what the limits of our knowledge actually involve. So we are not even close to being done. Um, and in the next few meditations, we will see where we go from here.